Welcome to the podcast of Living Faith Fellowship in Klamath Falls, Oregon. Now, you will hear Pastor Rich preach the sermon, Rejoice Always, from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. We pray that God will use this sermon to speak to you directly. And now, to Pastor Rich. So while the Apostle Paul was in prison, waiting execution for his faith, he said these words to the church at Philippi. He said, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. In the current environment of the world in which we live, it seems impossible to rejoice at all times. We all suffer moments of loss, uncertainty, and heartbreak. And so it's odd to me that the Apostle Paul, while sitting in a Roman prison, waiting to be executed, would say those words, rejoice, always, rejoice in the Lord. But you see, it's through circumstances and different trials within our life that we grow and mature in our faith. So no matter what loss we may have faced, no matter what trial, we can and should find hope and peace in the Lord Jesus Christ. Keep that in the back of your mind as you open your Bibles this morning to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 as we take a break out of the Gospel of Mark for Thanksgiving. As you're turning there, let me tell you a couple of things about 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians is thought to be the earliest of writings from the Apostle Paul to the churches he wrote. And the reason why he wrote this specific letter and 2 Thessalonians is because these new Christians were confused. They were confused about the return of Jesus Christ, and a lot of them even thought that they had missed the rapture of the church. And so Paul needed to teach them some things. They were going through so much persecution at the time that they believed, surely God has already come back. Jesus has already come back for his church, and we missed it. So Paul wanted to know how this newborn church was doing, so he sent his protege, Timothy, to go and find out and come back and give him a report. He, he wanted to know about their faith. He wanted to know how they were doing during this persecution. And also there were many false teachers within the church at that time. So Paul tells Timothy, go and come back. And so Timothy returned to Paul with this good report about how their faith was doing and how their love was doing. And so Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians, catch this, as an encouragement to these young believers. So with that as a backdrop, first there in your notes, as Christians, when should we rejoice? We're going to pick it up with the second shortest verse in all the Bible. We know the shortest verse in all the Bible is Jesus wept. Well, here's the second shortest one. 1 Thessalonians 5, look at verse 16. You should memorize this. Rejoice always. Pretty easy memory verse, right? Rejoice always. One of the main things that can enhance our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ is by rejoicing in trials. By rejoicing in trials. This is the way Peter said it in 1 Peter 1.6. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. Why? Verse 7, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, 
and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him yet believing, you rejoice with inexpressible joy, full of glory. Verse nine, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your soul. So why should we rejoice? How can we rejoice? There in your notes, the word rejoice is actually an action verb. And the dictionary definition means to feel or show great joy or delight. For the Christ follower, we don't just rejoice during happy times, but also during sorrowful times as well. And I know this seems so crazy at times, right? How can we do it? Because the Christian doesn't always rejoice based on circumstances. We rejoice because the author of the story has already told us the end of the story and we know how it all works out. So we can rejoice though these momentary trials, though though these terrible things are happening to us, We trust in the promises of the Lord Jesus Christ. John MacArthur said, there is no event or circumstance that can occur in the life of any Christian that should diminish a Christian's joy. There in your notes, circumstances always change, but the Lord never changes. Now, some people especially those who are going through a trial right this very moment, find it so difficult to find joy. And in fact, they would say it is impossible, Rich. It can't be done. And I'm here to tell you a secret. Ready? In the flesh, in your own power, you can't rejoice in all situations. It takes the power of the Holy Spirit living in you and an eternal perspective, knowing that the lover of our soul, the author of our faith is going to work things out. He's promised to, and he doesn't break promises. Again, rejoicing, having that inexpressible joy only comes from the Holy Spirit. So if you're a believer and you can't find a way to find joy, there's a secret here. There in your notes, happiness comes from happenings or because something happens our way. But the Lord instructs us to rejoice in all circumstances, in afflictions, as well as times of blessing. Now, I'm here to tell you, we don't rejoice when someone dies. We, we don't rejoice because of cancer. We don't rejoice because of a bankruptcy or a divorce or any of those things. But we rejoice knowing that this momentary trial, it's all going to work out because the God who loves us, the God who wrote the story, Your story's not finished yet. I have found in my own Christian walk that what I fail to do is realize that this life is simply a dress rehearsal for eternity. This is not all there is. If this is all there is, as the Apostle Paul would say, let us eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. This life is simply testing grounds for eternity. And in eternity, there'll be no more tears. There'll be no more sickness. There'll be no more bankruptcies, no more divorces. There'll be none of that. We'll be with the lover of our soul. And so we can rejoice knowing that. 
Paul said in Romans 8, 28, and catch the faith that Paul had here. And we know, not we think or hope, we know all things work together for good for those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Hear those words of faith out of the Apostle Paul. I know in whom I believe and I know all things are going to work out for his glory and for my good. He's promised. And I'm telling you the truth. You know, God, we serve a God who promises beauty from ashes. What I have been amazed with in my own life, and maybe you haven't experienced this, but in my own life, I am so amazed that God has even taken moments of sin and failure in my own life and spun it around and worked it out for his glory and my good. And that blows gray matter. Because how can a holy God take my times of failure, my times of sin, and and find beauty from ashes? How can he do that? I understand when he works something out, but my failures? Surely not. You know, the enemy wants us to stress out and live in fear over everything. But God said, I came to give you peace, not as the world gives, but I came to give you perfect peace. So if we're not at perfect peace, that's probably because we don't have the right perspective this morning. So what should we do? Roman numeral two, you should pray always. Pray always. Look at verse 17. Pray without ceasing. There are 377 references to praise and 375 references to prayer within Scripture. Christians are to have this open line of communication with Abba. This open line dialogue. Have you ever been in this situation where maybe you're telling somebody about the Lord Jesus Christ and you know they're not hearing. And so in the back of your mind, as you're talking, you're, oh, Lord, get them. You have this going on in the back of your mind or, or maybe something tragic happened and you're doing a hospital visit and someone just died and you're, you're there trying to show empathy and, and, and love. And in the back of your mind, you're like, Lord, comfort them. The way you can, only the way you can. God, I need you. Oh, how I need you. And God will never deny a prayer like that with that heart. Prayer is a communication with my loving father that I should be constantly in prayer. But there in your notes, this is unfortunate for most Christians, prayer is an untapped power source. C.H. Spurgeon said, the best style of prayer is that which can only be called a cry. A cry. I was thinking about King David, you know, and if you read the the story in the life of King David, I mean, you know, he killed a bear, killed a lion, you know, killed the giant, did all these things. So I always think of King David as kind of a burly dude, you know. 2 Samuel 22.7, this is what King David said. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried out to my God. He heard my voice from his temple and my cry entered his ears. Grown men can cry. And when they cry out to their dad, dad hears. There in your notes, I called upon the Lord literally means to cry out, to implore aid with desperation. When's the last time you were that desperate before God? Pastor Jim Cimbala said, 
I discovered an astonishing truth. God is actually attracted to weakness. He can't resist those who humbly and honestly call out to him in desperation. I don't know why, but the Lord has chosen prayer as the vehicle that he works through to teach us to fully depend and rely upon him. It's prayer he's chosen. I've mentioned this before, but it it just blows me away that we hear Christians say this sort of stuff all the time. Well, all I can do is pray for you. All I can do, this is what they're saying without knowing it. All I can do is go to the almighty, all-powerful creator who created with the words from his mouth everything we know. All I can do is go to the lover of your soul. That's all I can do. That's all you can do? That's all I want you to do. The one who placed the stars in the sky and calls them by name says, I will hear you when you call. All I can do is go to him for you. You know, the early church, they lost their jobs, got kicked out of synagogues, lost a lot of their families. All this stuff was going on because they turned to Christ and they had nobody They had nothing and they had to go to God with such desperation. Oh, God, if you don't show up, it just doesn't work out. Here in America, we're spoiled children. We have too much because we don't have to go to God with that. Oh, God, if you don't show up, I don't eat today. If that were the case, I think the cry of the church would be a lot louder James 4, 2 says, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your own pleasures. I have discovered that God answers every one of my prayers. Isn't that impressive? God answers every one of my prayers. And you might go, wow. God answers my prayers in his time, in his way, and according to his purpose. Which, by the way, is not always my purpose. (laughs) Sometimes my very favorite answer is yes. My second favorite answer is no, because I can live with it. Just tell me how it's going to go. My least favorite is wait. I am impatient. I'm just confessing my sins to my brothers and sisters. I'm an impatient dude. I just am. And so when God says, wait, I'm, but God... My life verse, true story, when I first became a Christian, this was my first life verse, and it stuck with me all these years, and it's apropos, considering I'm an impatient guy. Isaiah 40, 31. Those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up on wings of eagles. They shall run and not become weary. They shall walk and not faint. And of course, I'd love to tell you I understand all his ways. But usually I don't get it till 10 years later. I really don't. But when I trust him and I lay it at his feet and I just say, God, I can trust you in this situation. You've been faithful my whole life. There's never been a time you've not been faithful. And when I can say that and believe that, it's called faith. That's called faith. I'm amazed that God doesn't need nor want my advice. What he wants is my allegiance in my heart. That's what he wants. 
So the purpose of prayer is for me to know that he who is in charge loves me and has no plans to harm me whatsoever. Prayer is where I communicate with the Lord and then he helps me discover what his plan is. And here's a shock, you ready? Here's a shock, there in your notes. Our prayers do not change God's mind. They transform our mind to think like him. The psalmist said in Psalms 37, 4, Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Now, if that's all you read, you'd go, Woo, he's giving me my desires. You didn't read that in context, did you? Delight yourself also in the Lord, and then he'll give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he will bring it to pass. But see, it all starts out with delight yourself also in the Lord. It's where it starts. The heart that delights itself in the Lord will start to desire what God desires as he conforms us into his image. And as that happens, that's when we enjoy real fellowship with God. We finally realize, and I know this is crazy, but the one who placed the stars in the sky and calls them by name actually knows how the story ends and so when he says, this is my will, and I don't understand it, 10 years from now, I go, oh, that was better. Huh. Imagine that. That was better. Ian Bounds said this. What a church needs today is not better machinery, new organizations, or novel methods, but men and women the Holy Spirit can use because of their prayer. The Holy Spirit does not flow through methods. The Holy Spirit flows through people. Methods and plans, eh, a praying church. And so here's the questions I asked myself and thought, again, I'd share them with you. Do you want to be used to the Holy Spirit? And, and I hope your answer is yes. You want to be part of an amazing church? And I hope your answer is yes to that too. And be part of a praying church. All right. Roman numeral three. Give thanks. Look at the first part of verse 18. In some things give thanks. No, wait a minute. In everything give thanks. In everything. The Apostle Paul says, be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to him. Give thanks in every situation. And I'm here to tell you that's difficult. And again, some of us would say it's impossible. And without the Holy Spirit, you're absolutely right. But we know that God knows the future. And we know that he's working all things together for his glory, for your good. So in everything, give thanks. I struggle sometimes with that feeling of entitlement. You know, yes, God, I know I have nothing without you, but it'd sure be nice if you give me what I want. Entitlement. We're so blessed to live in the land of plenty that we fail to give thanks you see, entitlement leads to an attitude of unthankfulness. And as Christ followers, we've got to guard our hearts 
against being unthankful. It is a terrible sin. There in your notes, when it comes to being thankful, attitude is everything. The attitude that we carry through life is of paramount importance. Being thankful and realizing that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights, we know. And when we don't know, we take it for granted that gives that entitlement attitude. PRI.org said, grateful people who count their blessings, they get better sleep. Grateful people have less physical complaints and their overall health is much better than complainers. There's even research that says a person with appreciation has better heart rhythms. There in your notes. So the medical field agrees that thankfulness is a heart matter. Having a thankful heart is the largest part of your physical health as well. Having a positive mental attitude, and I'm not talking about, you know, blab it and grab it. I'm not talking about that. But I'm talking about having a positive mental attitude on all the things God has already done for you will help us always to do our best and know that God has given us everything. A good quality of life starts with being thankful. There in your notes. People who are thankful enjoy life more because they're not always angry and they're content with what God has provided. Roman numeral four, discovering God's will for your life. Look at the second part of 18. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. In everything give thanks. For it's God's will for you in Christ Jesus that you're thankful. Paul very clearly here says, Be thankful, pray without ceasing, rejoice always. Why? Because it's God's will. After all, we say we're Christ followers. Well, God's will is that you do these things. Paul also said to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, he asked this rhetorical question. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your soul, which are God's. And so what I'd like to do really quickly is how do I discover God's will for my life? I'm going to give you some practicals. Paul also said, Romans 12, 1. I beseech you, I beg you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And the NIV says reasonable act of worship. Verse two, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Why? That you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You want to know what is a good and perfect and acceptable will of God for your life? Present your bodies a living sacrifice. Because of all the mercies that he has shown you, do this. It's a response. It's not legalism. It's not have to. It's a response because of all he's done. I respond by offering all of me to him. There in your notes. For those who claim to follow Jesus, a living sacrifice is someone who willingly places themselves on the altar to actively do the work and the will of God. 
time out for a second. When Jesus offered himself on Calvary's tree, by his blood, he completely cleansed us. He washed us of all sins, made us holy and acceptable, made us perfect before the Father. So this isn't something I'm doing to earn salvation. I have salvation based on the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. Not anything I have done or can do or any of that. Okay? I'm righteous before God because he who knew no sin became sin for me that I might become the righteousness of God in him. Get that straight. It's the cross plus or minus nothing. But there's also no longer a need for animal sacrifices. Think about the temple, the tabernacle in the Old Testament. They had to sacrifice animals yearly to kind of cover over the sin until the following year, but it can never blot out your sin. But once Jesus, the Lamb of God, took the cross, no more animal sacrifices. So the cross is how I get there. But here's the problem with a living sacrifice. Think again back to the Old Testament. You bring in this bull and you tie it to the altar and then you sacrifice it. Us as living sacrifices, we're not tied to the altar. And I found this in my own life. Maybe you found this. Every once in a while, I get up and walk away from that altar. I tell God I'm offering myself fully yours. I'm here at the altar, fully yours. And then because I'm not tied to it, I walk away. So here's what I've got to do. And again, maybe you're better than me, different than me. But I not only have to daily come back to the altar and offer myself, I got to do it moment by moment. Because you know what's so cool is I'll offer myself to God on, on the altar right here, right now. And I'll get like three rows walking towards the back. She gone. It's a moment by moment surrender, putting my face back before the altar. Moment by moment. This is the picture of a spirit-filled believer dying to themselves in their flesh, moment by moment. And the moment that that ugly flesh rears its ugly head, I surrender it again and again and again and again. And again, it has nothing to do with my salvation. Christ's blood alone, faith in that alone, save me. When you get tired of striving to earn God's favor, when you're tired of trying to do it by self, die to self and put yourself on that altar. He loves you. And so why did Paul say this is reasonable or this is logical? Because the Lord's wisdom is so greater than ours, by placing yourself on that altar, he knows where he's taking you. He knows what he's going to do in your life. And so he said, just stop. And let me do it through you and for you. I am God's masterpiece created in Christ Jesus. The problem is, is my flesh likes to sin. And I am now the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so God is looking at his temple. This is his temple. And he's saying, stop harming yourself with that sin. It isn't that God's an ogre and he doesn't want us to have fun. He's saying, you're mine and you're too special for that. Stop it. Surrender. Place yourself on the altar. I'll give you the abundant life. Sin harms us and separates us. 
And so the forgiveness of Christ brings freedom. And if we go to that yoke of sin again, God's saying, please don't do that to my temple. Don't do that to my child. How amazing is it that again, the God who created the moon and the stars, the sun and the heavens, the earth and everything in it would choose to use fallible, sinful people. That ought to do something, no matter what your position or title in life is. When you stop and you're in such awe of who this God is, that he loves you, died for you and wants to use you. That ought to just blow you away. And then he says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed. There in your notes, the word conform means to be or to become similar in form, nature, or character. In other words, don't become like the world or the ways of the world. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold, J.B. Phillips would say. To be transformed means that he's creating in you a mind that's no longer dominated by the flesh or sin. It means to be changed in structure and composition. It's the same change, by the way, that happens when a caterpillar becomes a butterfly. It's the word, word metamorpho. It's, of course, where we get our English word metamorphosis. Now, what I have found out is a lot of Christians don't look that different on the outside. But once you've given your heart to Christ, he starts to change you from the inside out. And eventually you do look different on the outside. This amazing metamorphosis takes place. But there's something else I want to tell you about a caterpillar. A caterpillar goes up the tree and makes this cocoon. Do you know they say that if that caterpillar doesn't struggle to get out of that cocoon, doesn't struggle, that they can't fly? And they can't survive. I think there's a sermon there. Without struggle, you can't fly and you can't survive. Maybe that's why God allows struggles in our life. I don't know. Again, Paul would say, you're not your own. You were bought with a price. I always think of the song, Here I Am to Worship. And it always just ruins me when I hear that song. One line in the song says, I'll never know how much it cost to see my sin upon that cross. That ruins me every time. And so Jesus purchased sinful, fallen, redeemed dead people with the ultimate sacrifice on Calvary. He created us for his glory and then he created us in his image. And so we're here for the Lord's purposes and fellowship and worship and to enjoy the life he's given. How about you? Left to my own vices, without the power of the Holy Spirit, I know where I'd be this morning. I would be so deep in the world and in sin, I couldn't see myself out. And I think that's all of us. Because God doesn't cause sin. The world and the enemy do that. But the Lord is sovereign and he knows the outcome and he's got this plan for his kids. And even through our sin, he's directing our life. We become this new creation in Christ. And then he says, don't allow the world to squeeze you into its mold. 
And then finally, Paul says in Romans 12, 2, that you may prove or know what is the acceptable and perfect will of God. You'll be able to test and approve, the NIV says. The word no, by the way, is, is not this intellectual no. It's an intimate no, like Adam knew his wife. You can intimately, into me see, intimately know God's will for your life. There in your notes, you will always remain in the center of God's will as you give yourself as a living sacrifice to him. If your heart is focused on him, he has first place in your life. You will naturally, as a response, want to fulfill his will for you. And again, I want to tell you about this amazing metamorphosis that takes place. Why would God do that? I, I said Ephesians 2.10 that were his workmanship, but do you know he even said that kind of thing in the Old Testament? Deuteronomy 14.2 says, the Lord has chosen you to be his treasured possession. You. That's how it is for God. He created us. He owns us. We sold ourselves into slavery. He bought us back so that we would stop harming his treasured possession. So let's get practical this morning. Another thing I've discovered in my life is being obedient to God is not the easiest thing to do always. My flesh is strong. I live in a fallen world where bad things happen. Sin entered the world, bad things happen. But God has called us, called out ones out of this world. And as we obediently follow him, we realize that his plans are so much better than my plans. They're so much better. And, and so how I want to end is just a couple of practical things of why God allows trials in our life. Because while you're going through trials, it's very easy to ask the question, why? In fact, it's more than easy. It's natural. We ask these questions. And, you know, I never want to make light of where you're at this morning or the trials that you're going through. But I do want to kind of give you a picture of how God feels about his kids. So first there in your notes, the Lord allows trials in our lives to mature us spiritually. You know, I, I did a wanna for like 19 years and I knew kids who could recite Isaiah 53 word perfect Ephesians 6, word perfect, every verse. And what I found out is you can know all the scriptures in the Bible. You can know all the promises of God. But until you rest on them, until you trust in them, and until you know them intimately, and you see them through a trial, and you put them into effect in your life, they're not going to mean a thing to you. Trials cause us, they push us to rely on him more which causes maturity. The second one is the Lord allows trials in our life to strengthen us. If you study church history at all, ever, you will soon discover that the only time the church grew or prospered was during times of persecution. When there was peace within the church, they shrunk back and they were weak. And I think that's how it is in our life. Without adversity, what we end up doing, what we tend to do, and I should say what Rich tends to do without adversity in his life is get self-sufficient. I don't need the Lord. Lord, I'll tell you what, 
I'll call you when I need you. And Jesus says, cool, I love you and I want to talk. Hmm. <laughs> that probably doesn't happen to you. Next one. The Lord allows trials in our life to prove himself faithful. Again, as you go through these trials and you cry out to the Lord Jesus Christ and he comes through time and time again, you say, you know what, Lord, you've never failed me once and you're not going to fail me now. It usually, though, it takes me, I don't know, about a decade. It takes me about 10 years to realize that. So if you're going through a trial, wait 10 years and give me a call, okay? But when we see God's hand of protection and provision and all those things that were working behind the scenes when it's so crazy and you go, wow. There's a, a cartoon and I wish I could find it, put it on PowerPoint. I haven't been able to find it, but it was, a, it was kind of a, a guy that was getting pelted by a couple of little pebbles and he was kind of cursing God. And then the next scene draws back and, and here's Jesus Christ being pelted by boulders and every once in a while a little pebble would fall through. And Jesus was being pelted with the, with the boulders. And here was this guy complaining that he was going through these trials. Romans 8.28, again, Paul said, we know all things work together for good to those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. God's in control. God's faithful. Even when it doesn't feel like it, God's in control. God's faithful. Even when it hurts, God's in control. God's faithful. Next, the Lord's purpose for us during trials is to conform us into the image of Jesus Christ. As much as I love Romans 8.28, for we know God works all things together for good, Romans 8.29 finishes it a little better. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Why? To be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. When we concentrate, when we don't have an eternal perspective and we concentrate on the here and now, it seems like God has forgotten us. But God sees the big picture. And trials are used to prepare us I thought about this. What if God, and this is a crazy thought, but what if God had a special task in mind for you personally? God had something specific that was such a big deal. But the only way to prepare you for that was to go through these trials. I wonder if you ask some of the people who are in heaven, like the Apostle Paul, would you change anything? No. There's no way he would. I think about Joseph. In Genesis chapter 50, you get to the end of Joseph's life, and if you know anything about the story, you know he was sold into slavery by his brothers. His brothers were jealous of him. He was put in jail with a false accusation of rape. All these different things happened to him. And at the end of the story, dad has died. The brothers come. They're thinking, Joseph's going to kill us. And they come, and they're begging for their lives. And Joseph said in Genesis 50, verse 20, what you meant for evil... God turned around and worked out for good to save many people alive. I wonder if we went to Joseph this morning and said, hey, Joe, what do you think? Want to change anything? There's no way. Part of trusting the Lord, the biggest part of trusting the Lord is trusting him during trials. 
You know, sometimes God is glorified by removing the trial out of your life. But more times than that, God is glorified when we trust him, when it hurts, when we trust him in the trial. And sometimes I've found out, do you know you might be going through a trial to minister to someone else? You ever think about that? You know, Sandra and I had had uh, lost a couple of kids through miscarriage. And I want to tell you, it was really, really tough back then. But I think about that now, fast forwarding into ministry and how many people that I can come alongside doesn't make it easier for them, but I can have empathy and I can minister to them. And everything else that has happened within our lives, I can look back and say, you know what? I understand your pain. I love you. Not that you can fully take away their pain, but I can understand it and I can walk alongside you. I've, I've walked in your shoes and let me tell you how God had to work it out in my life. So maybe those trials are to minister to someone else. Maybe it's not all about me. But whatever you're going through, the Lord will give you what you need when you need it because he's in control. There's no doubt about it. And you know why the Lord gives us these desert experiences? Or at least this is another thing I found out in my life. I believe God gives us these desert experiences so I enjoy the mountaintop more. So many times we, we take for granted these mountaintop experiences. Oh, and we walk away. Eh, I'm done. If you go through some times of trial and you get some mountaintop experiences, you, you learn to appreciate and not take the Lord for granted. And again, when you look back and you see how God provided and God protected and God loved and all these different things. You go, thank you, Lord Jesus. Says the Apostle Paul told the church at Philippi. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. But what about rejoice in the Lord always? And again, I say rejoice. I'm going to ask the worship team to come on up. Every week there's some of us prayer partners in the back who would just love to pray with you and you know, we've probably walked a mile in your shoes. Doesn't make it easier, but we can rejoice with you. We can mourn with you. We can pray for you. We can try and love on you. God is so good. I am here to tell you, my God will never, ever, ever fail you. He loves you and you're his. He'll take good care of you. Thank you for listening to Pastor Rich preach the sermon, Rejoice Always, from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. Tune in next week as Pastor Rich continues the Gospel of Mark sermon series. Join us every Sunday morning, either in person at 8.30 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. or online at 10.30 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. Watch our live stream on our website, YouTube, or Facebook page. Our website is livingfaithclimate.com. To find our Facebook, YouTube, or Instagram profile, simply search for Living Faith Fellowship Klamath. You can also find these links in the description of this week's episode. All sermons are available on our website. Simply click on the Resources tab and then click on Sermons. If you want to show your appreciation, you can tell others about us, subscribe to our podcast, and you can also leave a review so more people can hear the Word of God. Thank you again, and God bless you.